Passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. But as I was saying, I'm Kurt. I'm one of the pastors. And it was good to be back. Last week, Pastor Chris, he took the preached for graduation Sunday, and I'm very thankful he did that, and that gave me a chance to be away a little bit, a little bit of an easier weekend, so I could go up to Minneapolis and pick up my daughter at college, yeah, and bring her home. So we're excited to have you home, Deanna, as she turns multiple shades of red. Isn't that perfect? All right, well, a couple of announcements before we get into our study this morning. Uh, first of all, congratulations to the Spirit Lake High School Boys dra- track team. They are now state champions. So we're proud of them and we're thrilled for that excitement in our community. Uh, secondly, Pastor Jordan is going to be taking some time on sabbatical this summer. So from June 3rd to August 14th, roughly, uh, he'll be gone. And myself and the other pastors will be rotating in on the Spencer campus pulpit to be able to cover that and doing some other things to try and cover things together. But that's sort of the nice part about being a multi-site church, that we can work together to, to help one another. And this is a great opportunity to do that. And during that time period, We're not going to be studying 1 Samuel. We're going to take a little break from that. We're going to do a series called What Does the Bible Say? And it's going to be simple uh, standalone messages answering the questions that you guys answered on our preaching topic survey. So we're going to just, you know, go back and work through answers to those questions. We hope that'll be really helpful to you. We're excited to do that. Uh, third brief announcement is this is the last week where this service is at 11 o'clock. Starting next week, this service will be at 10 o'clock for the summer. So make sure you have that in your head. If you show up at 11 o'clock next week, you'll be in time to just leave. So you want to make sure you're on, on time. Uh, Spencer Campus Construction, brief update for you guys on that. Things are going really well. We have most of the, the walls up in the kids' space. We have one large wall we have to complete, and that is the wall on the sides and the back of the worship center area down there as we frame that in. But we were able to get a, an electrical contractor organized, and so that electrical contractor should be either coming in the end of this week or beginning of next week. So we're, we're on track with those things, and we're excited as we move forward. And that being stated, let's jump into our study. So go ahead and take out your Bibles, uh, take out your sermon outlines. You want to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 14, verse 24. That's where we're picking up this morning. And if you've been with us in our study, you know that this is actually a part three in a little mini-series that uh, Samuel has been giving. The, this little series began in 1 Samuel chapter 13, and this little section is all one story, and it ends today. Um, but for me to, to really properly give this message, since it's a part three, I need to briefly recap parts one and two so things actually make some sense. And if you're using your outlines, this is point one, which is called the background. And here's how the story goes. Remember when Saul was finally established as king, what we find is he didn't do what he was commanded to do. 
We saw when Samuel first uh, inaugurated him or anointed him as king, he was supposed to attack an outpost of Philistine soldiers that were deep inside of Israelite territory. And he didn't do that. So at this point, Saul's son, Jonathan, did what his father should have done. He attacked that Philistine outpost and destroyed it. But you can probably imagine the response from the Philistines. They weren't too happy about that. In fact, they declared war against the Israelites, and they came with quite an impressive army. We saw they had 30,000 chariots, 6,000 in the cavalry. And when it came to foot soldiers, it says as many as the sand on the seashore. Like you couldn't even count them there was so many. Now, the Israelites didn't have an army of that size. Saul started with an army of about 3,000 soldiers. And as you'll remember, all they had in the way of weapons to fight with were sticks and stones, where the Philistines had iron weapons. And so it didn't look too good. When the Israelite soldiers saw this massive Philistine army, they actually decided to go AWOL. Most of them split. And Saul was left with an army reduced down to only 600 men. From there, he left the front lines of Michmash, went away to, to Gibeah, sat under a pomegranate tree, and sort of did absolutely nothing. He just sat there and ate fruit snacks while, <laughs> while the countryside was being ravished by the Philistines. Well, Jonathan, he did what his father should have done. And we find at that point that Jonathan... Saul's son stepped to the plate, and he became the man his father should have been. Not content to sit under the pomegranate tree, hiding in fear, he decided that action had to be taken. And he knew, Jonathan did, that what mattered was not the size of the army that they were facing. What mattered was the size of the God that was with them. As he said, he knew that God can save. It doesn't matter if there is, he saves by many or if he saves by few. But God is the one who holds the outcome of the battle in his hands. And he also knew, from we know the book of Judges, early, Israel's earlier history, there was abundant examples many times when Israel was completely outgunned and God came to the rescue by either a small group of men and sometimes single-handedly one man with daring faith God used to rescue his people. And Jonathan and his armor bearer said, you never know, maybe God's going to let us be those people. Jonathan and his armor bearer went to a deep valley on one side of Michmash where the Philistines were encamped on the top. And there was a slope there, as we saw two weeks ago. The name of the slope was called Slippery, literally in Hebrew. It was a sheer rock wall. And a little bit like Alex Honnold, he decided, uh, Jonathan and his armor bearer, climbed that rock wall and began slicing and dicing at this massive Philistine army. And the only one who had a sword was, from the Israelites was Jonathan. His armor bearer didn't even have one. And yet that was all that it needed. And at that point, God stepped into this situation. He filled the Philistines with panic, and they began running over each other and killing one another. God also stepped to the plate by bringing an earthquake, and it really freaked them out. 
And when Saul's lookout saw what was happening on top of the hill at Michmash and how the Philistine army was killing one another and dispersing, he and his small army began running there to help. And they, all the soldiers who had gone AWOL, they came out of hiding and they're running to help and to just sort of clean up the mess. And it looks like God is giving an amazing victory. And that's where we left off two weeks ago. But as we're going to find today, even though God's given an amazing victory, Saul has a way of messing things up. He has a way of snatching defeat right out of the jaws of victory. How does he do that? Let's start to find out. It begins with this. My turn there. Where we left off uh, last time, it ended with this. So the Lord saved Israel that day. But there where it begins where we're at right now, in verse 24, it continues by saying, and the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day. Well, if God is saving Israel, and all they have to do is sort of show up and just mop things up, why are they so hard-pressed? Well, what does it even mean to be hard-pressed? That little phrase, hard-pressed, actually showed up in chapter 13 of 1 Samuel. It was used to describe the emotional reaction of the Israelite army when they saw the massive Philistine army that came out to fight against them. The army with iron javelins, iron spears, iron shields, massively outnumbered them. The Israelites, as they held their sticks and stones, were pretty depressed. They were pretty discouraged. They felt totally overwhelmed. That's the same feeling they're going through today in this situation, even though God is giving them the victory. They're stressed out and they're discouraged. But why? Let's continue and find out. So Saul had laid an oath on the people saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. Saul had put the entire army under an oath where they couldn't eat or really drink anything that day. They're fighting this battle where really God is already doing the fighting for them, but they still have to do like the mop up. They're doing it all on an empty stomach. Now you say, well, that, how bad could that be? We'll see in a little bit that this battle will actually take them over 25 miles of rugged terrain, mountainous terrain. They are going to be exhausted. They're going to be completely worn out. And Saul has said they can't eat anything. Now, it doesn't tell us why Saul made this sort of rash oath, but I have a guess. I don't know for sure. You may disagree with me, but I'll throw my idea out there for you. I think what happened is Saul likes to be the center of attention. He has a little ego. We can see that. Nobody can eat until I am avenged on my enemies. What happened is when Jonathan is attacking the Philistines, 
and the army sees that Jonathan is, you know, doing well and things are going well and that God is working, the army actually sort of goes and follows Jonathan. So how does Saul return the attention to himself? Make himself the center of attention again. He comes up with this silly oath. Nobody can eat until I get revenge on my enemies. So for Saul, this battle is not about saving a nation. It really ends up being about him building his ego. Saul doesn't really care about his soldiers, does he? What he really cares about is himself. The army, he doesn't see the, that they're there to serve God. He sees them as they're there to serve him. Saul is a man who is drunk on power. Saul is a man who's in love with the person he sees in the mirror every morning. Now, what happens is the rest of this chapter is just an expose on Saul's leadership. It is one bad leadership decision after another. And that's what the rest of chapter 14 sort of gives us a window into. What was Saul like in his interpersonal interactions with his people and with his army? What was his leadership like? He's a very poor leader. And so this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to look through these verses under this lens of what does poor leadership look like? We learned it from Saul, and how can we see what it looks like in our own lives? And the first lesson, we've already seen it, it's this. Poor leaders use their position to serve themselves instead of others. Isn't that true? Saul is busy serving himself, telling people that they cannot eat. He's exercising power just because he has it and because he can use it. Now, don't we see people who do that today? Leaders who exercise their power to serve themselves, to line their pockets not to serve the people who elected them or the people who represent them. They use the power just for themselves. Now, I know that while it's easy to point fingers at other people, we have to remember that the one place we should always make sure we point the fingers back at ourselves is, isn't it true that we're not immune to this? that when we find ourselves in any position of power, in any organization or any job they're in, isn't it easy to use that position of authority just to serve ourselves, not to serve the people we represent? I'll give you an example. Sometimes um, when I do marital counseling, I find that there is a husband that sees his position of using his wife and his children just to serve himself. He looks at, you know, isn't she there to be my helpmate? Aren't my children there just to serve me? Very sort of selfish orientated. And I often think about this. What does the scripture tell us? That a husband is to love his wife like Christ loved the church, as Christ gave himself up for the church to save her, The husband is to give him his very life up. 
so his wife may be pure, may be his pure and spotless bride. That a husband is not about trying to use his position of authority to serve himself. A husband should be using his position of authority to serve his wife and to serve his children. But it's so easy to fall into the same kind of um, strategy that Saul does. Let's continue the text. Now when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping. But no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. Some of you know that uh, I grew up as a wrestler. And as a wrestler, we learned to cut weight. You don't eat. It's not too bad to cut weight until you're in the kitchen when your mom is cooking dinner and you smell her cooking. Then it's really hard. Well, what the soldiers are doing is they're running through the woods, chasing the Philistines. They find themselves in a position in the woods where there are all these beehives above them, and they're just laden with honey. They're just dripping the honey. They're in the ancient version of a candy store when they haven't eaten all day and they're famished. But nobody can touch any of this honey and to be energized by any of this honey, except for one person who never heard his father give this silly oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath. So he put out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth and his eyes became bright. Jonathan doesn't take much time. He doesn't take much honey. Just the tip of his staff, just takes his finger and swipes it. That was so good when I needed energy and I was so incredibly tired. He gets a sugar buzz. Is that what we call it? After traveling 25 miles, I'm sure that sugar buzz is helpful. But the people, when they see him do this, they're horrified. Verse 28. Then one of the people said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. So here we see again that the people are tired. They're exhausted. They're starving. Now, Jonathan, he sees the honey. He sees all of this good sugar He sees the exhausted army who can't take in any of it because of his father's oath. And he sort of speaks his mind about what his father has done. Pretty tempting to do that, isn't it? Then Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey. How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found. For now, the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. What I like to do when I study these texts is I sometimes look for key phrases and I see if they've been used earlier in the Bible to help us understand what they mean. This little phrase, my father has troubled the land, this phrase is used earlier in the scriptures. It's used in Joshua chapter 7. It's used to describe what Achan did to Israel. Do you remember that situation? 
Israel was going into the promised land and God was giving them victory over their enemies. First, they had gone around the city of Jericho, marched around it a number of times over seven days, and then God knocked down the walls and they went and destroyed the people. But they were to destroy all of the plunder of Jericho. Everybody did but one person. The man's name was Achan. He took a robe and some bars of metal and he kept it in his tent, hidden under his tent. And when they went to the next city called Ai, instead of God being with them, they were resoundedly defeated by this much smaller city. In fact, a number of men actually died. What we find is that Achan troubled the land, it says in that point. In other words, what this means is troubling the land is sin that destroys what God intends to be a blessing. Sin that destroys what God intends to be a blessing. This is what Saul had done with his rash oath. God had intended to destroy the Philistines, but because the people were hungry and starving, the defeat among the Philistines was not being that great. Saul had succeeded in snatching defeat, out of the jaws of victory. And this brings us to the second point of application that we can learn from this. A poor leader makes rules that take life from God's people instead of giving life to God's people. God didn't make this rule that you can't eat while you were in a battle. Saul made this rule completely in and of himself, just to turn attention to himself. Now, don't we see this being played out in politics and in government today, where people make rules that end up taking life from God's people rather than giving life to people? There are rules that are there for restriction. There are rules that are there for control. That's poor leadership. Now, let's not get into the, a political discussion on these things. That's so easy for everyone's mind to go to. Let's look at ourselves. That's the best place that we can go. Let's look at, for instance, even church and Christendom. And how can we as Christians inadvertently make rules that take life from God's people? But they're not God's rules. They're really our rules that we add to the Christian life. An example of that is something that came to mind last week. Last week when Pastor Chris preached, I was gone that week. I was at Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. Uh, graduates of my doctoral class, about 40 of us get together once a year and we study a book of the Bible with a scholar on that book. And we got together with Doug Moo, who's written the pillar commentary for Colossians and Philemon. And he taught on that book. And then we would get together and talk about how we would preach sections of that book. It was a really good time together. But one evening... We had a chance to, a guy was there, he's, he was a Christian ecologist. He said, you know, can I talk with you guys about Christian ecology? And we're like, sure, I guess you can tell us about that. And you can sort of guess how that went, you know. Don't burn fossil fuels, save the planet, we're all going to die. You, you know, you've heard all this kind of stuff. Well, at one point in this whole Christian ecology thing, it sort of turns out the guy's like, well, and, uh, you know, we don't even turn our thermostats in the winter above 65 degrees to save the fuel. And then the other guy turns around and goes, well, we don't turn our thermostats over 55 degrees. And I'm like, where do you guys live? Like, you have dinner with snowsuits on? 
Like, how do you do this? Like, it does not say in the Bible that to be a good Christian and to use the planet properly, you have to have the thermostat at 55 degrees. You don't add those things to the scripture. Like, I had this idea. Like, did you guys try to insulate your houses? Maybe add more insulation and turn the thermostat back up so you can survive. But this is what people do when they're bad leaders. They like to make rules that end up taking life from God's people instead of giving life to God's people. And that's what Saul had done. And sometimes we as Christians can inadvertently do that, you know, because all good Christians have their thermostat at 55 degrees. Not. Okay, the text continues. They, were stru- they struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash to Ijalon, and the people were very faint. And you can see that theme coming back up. These guys are exhausted. Now, I'm not going to put the map up there to show you where Ijalon is, but I'll just simply put it this way. The distance between Michmash and Ijalon is 20 miles over rugged, mountainous terrain. And if you have to come up from Gibeah, that's another five miles to even get to Michmash. So you put those together, it's a 25-mile trek with no food and not putting anything to their mouth. What do you think the soldiers think about Saul and his silly oath today? Do you think they're real excited about him? Do you think they're really interested in following him? Do you think they think he's a good leader or a poor leader? What do you think? This sort of um, explains what happened next. Remember, he said that after I've been avenged of my enemies, that evening they could eat. And look what happens in the evening. The people pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground. And the people ate them with the blood. The troops are famished. Ox, sheep, cattle, slaughtering them, eating the steaks raw. They're hungry. Have you guys ever been to that time where you're like so famished that you don't bother to actually finish cooking your meal? You just jump into eating your meal? Anybody? There's like like one person in first service admitted it. I'm like, no, I, I don't eat the meat raw, but at least I'll eat the can of soup cold, right? Because I'm hungry. You know? That's what these guys are like. They're eating their meat raw. Now, now, do you and I, you know, if a steak has a little bit of blood in it, it might be a little gross, but it wouldn't keep us from eating it. But blood for the Israelites is a different thing. Blood is more of a sacred thing. So they were to drain all of the blood out of the animal. In fact, we find in Genesis 9-4, they were not to eat meat with blood in it. Leviticus reminds us of this. Moreover, you shall eat no blood whatever whether of fowl or of animal or in any of your dwelling places. Whoever eats any blood, that person shall be cut off from his people. Why can the Israelites not have any blood on their stake? What was the big deal? For them, blood was a symbol of life. If you remember in the Old Testament tabernacle, blood was used for the atonement, for the atonement of sin. So blood is a sacred thing, but these guys are so hungry, they are not properly draining the blood off of the meat. Now, this brings us another application point of poor leadership. What brought these guys to the point that they were famished? What brought these guys to the point where they were not 
properly draining the meat. It was actually Saul's silly command. Here's the point. A poor leader encourages unintentional sin. By his poor leadership choices, people were tripping into sin, real sin, but they were doing it unintentionally. I mean, if Saul hadn't had them marching 25 miles without eating anything, they maybe wouldn't have been so famished and so desperate and so hungry. Saul is actually the one who should bear some of the responsibility for what they're doing wrong. Now, sometimes don't we make poor leadership choices like that? Sometimes don't we sometimes make declarations or rules that encourage sin in other people's lives? I'll give you a silly example, but a real one from our family. When our boys were getting of the age, they have their car and they're out with their friends. The rule was sort of, you have to be home at 10 o'clock. And, you know, sometimes they weren't home at 10 o'clock. So it became, you have to be home at 10 o'clock or else. No questions asked. I don't care what your excuse is. Get home by 10 o'clock. Sounds good like a parent, right? Until you find that your kids are speeding to get home by 10 o'clock. And then you're like, well, wait a minute. If you're going to be late, just give me a call at least. Don't speed on the way home. But you said I had to be home by 10 o'clock or else. No questions asked. Okay. Maybe I overstepped my bounds a little bit. Maybe I have to back off a little bit. But that's sort of poor leadership on a dad's part, isn't it? Tripping up children into unintentional sin. You see how we can all do these same things? The story continues. And then they told Saul, Behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And he said, you have dealt treacherously. Roll a great stone to me here. And Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, Let every man bring his ox or his sheep and slaughter them here and eat. And do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night, and they slaughtered them there. And Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he built to the Lord. I love Saul's reaction when he hears that the men are eating the meat with some blood in it. You have dealt treacherously. In other words, how dare you? No recognition that maybe the reason this is happening is because of his silly oath. No recognition that he's actually a big part of the problem. When he poses himself as the hero with the big solution, look, I've got a rock. Everybody should slaughter the animal on the rock. That'll make sure the blood drains out. And what we see here is Saul is sort of blind, isn't he? He's blind to his own faults. He's blind to the fact that he is contributing to the problem, isn't he? Maybe people wouldn't be so hungry if he didn't have such silly orders. And this gives us another application. A poor leader is quick to see the sin in others, but they are blind to the sin in themselves. Isn't that something we see a lot today? People are quick to see the sin in others. They're blind to the sin in themselves. 
Now, it doesn't matter which party's in office. Whenever there's problems in the country, who do they blame? The previous administration. It's always the previous administration's fault. It's never our fault. Blind to the sin in themselves, quick to point the finger to others. Poor leaders cannot see their own sin. He continues, then Saul said, well, let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. Let us not leave a man of them. And they said, well, do whatever seems good to you. Not a lot of enthusiasm from the troops part at this point. Put yourself in their shoes. Imagine what it would be like that day. 25 miles, tracking through rugged country, chasing Philistines. You can't eat anything. You can't drink anything. You're exhausted. The sun has finally gone down. You're desperate. You slaughter an animal. You can't even wait to drain the blood. You can't even wait to cook the meat. You're eating the animal because you're famished. And you're sitting there just trying to recover after the day. And your gut is feeling huge. And then Saul comes up and says, I got a great idea, guys. Let's go attack the Philistines tonight. Like, what planet are you on? Why do we have to do that now? Why can't we, like, wait till morning? They're not going anyplace. They can't see anything. How are we going to even see them to attack them? Saul is out of touch with his troops. He's out of touch with the people he leads, isn't he? And this gives us another sort of leadership application. A poor leader makes excessive demands on the people. And that's what Saul is doing. Now, a leader and a supervisor, obviously, they have to call their team to action. And they should have high bars for their team. That's important. That's what a supervisor and a leader's job is. But that leader also has to know their team and know the limits of their team and the state of their team. Saul is completely out of touch with that. Why does he want to get these Philistines and attack them by night? My guess is he simply wants to get a hold of the plunder sooner. He can't even wait till the morning. He doesn't care about his soldiers. He doesn't care about his people. Can't that sometimes be true about us? If we're in positions of leadership, can't we sometimes find ourselves demanding too much of our people, caring more about results than the people who give us the results? It's easy for a supervisor to be in that position. And it continues. But the priest said, let us draw near to God here. And Saul inquired of God, shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? Now, I don't know. My simple guess here. I'm thinking Ahijah the priest throws in the towel and says, you know, Saul, we better check this with God to simply give the soldiers a much needed rest. You know, maybe God will want them to go down and attack the Philistines by night. But this seems like a really bad idea right now. So we better check this with God just to see what he says. But all of a sudden there's a problem. But he did not answer him that day. God goes silent. Now, if you're a soldier, 
you're thinking to yourself, maybe God is as frustrated with King Saul as I am. Maybe that's the reason God's not saying anything. But Saul, as you know, doesn't have much self-reflection. He doesn't see himself as part of the source of the problem or the contributor to the problem. This is what he goes after. And Saul said, Come here, all you leaders of the people, and know and see how this sin has arisen today. For as the Lord lives and saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. Saul is convinced that the reason God isn't speaking to him is that there's sin in the camp. And whoever that may be, that person will die. No matter what they have done, no matter what the circumstances that surround them, they deserve to die. Now, if you're a soldier in the army, you're thinking, man, Saul, you make these rash oaths and they get you in trouble. Like, don't eat on the day of battle. Got him in trouble. Here's another one. Whoever has sinned in the camp, they shall surely die. I don't care the reason. I don't care the circumstances. This is another leadership lesson for us. A poor leader makes rash decisions. Isn't that true? They don't stop to think about what they're going to decide. They don't stop to analyze the possible circumstances. They don't wait to hear all the sides and all the other issues. They just make a rap decision, a snap judgment. Now, it's easy for us to think of people who have acted that way, but haven't we acted that way? I know when it comes to parenting, sometimes I've acted that way. If you do that one more time, you are grounded for a month. Anybody ever said something like that? That's poor leadership. Snap judgment, done in the anger of the moment, done in the heat of the moment, not stopping to think things through. Now, what about the soldiers? But there was not a man among the people who answered him. Everyone is going silent on Saul. Nobody's talking to him. Nobody wants to be around him. It's like they're just giving the man his space while he has his little anger fit right now. Then he does this. Then he said to all Israel, You shall be on one side, and I and Jonathan my son will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, Well, do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said, O Lord God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant this day? If the guilt is in me or in Jonathan my son, O Lord God of Israel, give Orem. But if this guilt is in your people Israel, give Thuman. And Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. Then Saul said, Cast the lot between me and my son Jonathan. And Jonathan was taken. This brings us into this whole topic of casting lots, this Urim and Thummim, and what is this whole thing? So let me take a moment to explain it. These were two stones that were in the priest, high priest's breastplate. Now, we don't know this 100% for sure, with certainty, from what we can tell, these stones had a white side and a black side, and they were cast on the ground like you were rolling dice. If two whites were up, the answer was yes. If two blacks were up, the answer was no. If it was a white and a black, the answer was sort of undecided or God wasn't going to answer you. Now, you say, well, why did they do this? It determines God will, God's will. 
Well, they believed and they knew that God was in control of all events in the world. Even random events are not truly random. And though this is the way they tried to figure out what God's will was. Some of you are saying, well, maybe we should be doing this. Should we be rolling dice to figure out things? The answer is absolutely not. They didn't have the Holy Spirit. When Jesus comes, he's given us the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, who guides us into all truth. They also didn't have the Word of God in its completeness and its fullness like we do, which we're, this has everything we need to know to live a life pleasing to God. They didn't have those things. So the way they tried to determine God's will on things was random events, like casting down these two stones. Well, what it turns out is that Jonathan is the one who was identified as having sinned in the camp, the hero of the day. Then Saul said to Jonathan, Tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him, Well, I tasted a little honey with the tip of my staff that was in my hand. Here I am. I will die. Can you understand the way Jonathan answers this? He's showing the sheer absurdity of his father's choices and his father's words. All I did was take a little bit of honey with the tip of my staff. By the way, I didn't even know about your oath that you would put under the people. I guess that's a capital offense. Sure enough, I deserve to die. This is trying to show the sheer lunacy and the poor leadership of Saul. Look what happens. Does Saul back off from this? Absolutely not. Then Saul said, God, do so to me, and more also, you shall surely die. This is a man who's drunk on his own ego, who's caught up on his own power, willing at this point to kill his own son his son who has been the man that he should have been, his son who has done the work that he should have done by attacking that Philistine outpost, the man, his son, with daring faith, Saul is willing to kill him because he had had a minor infraction ignorantly of one of Saul's commands. Isn't this showing poor leadership? Major poor leadership. And here's another takeaway. A poor leader cares more about their position than their people. Isn't that true? Saul does not care about his son. He only cares about his power and the fact that his son has violated it. Will anybody stop Saul? Maybe it's going to take everybody to stop Saul, and that's exactly what we find happens. Then the people said to Saul, all of them in unity, shall Jonathan die? who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not be one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan, so that he did not die. The entire nation stood up against Saul and rejected his leadership. Now, let me jump to a conclusion with this. What we find is, as Saul drifts away from God, he becomes an increasing tyrant over 
the people. And folks, that's not just something that happens with John with Saul. That's something that happens with everyone today. The farther leaders drift away from God, the more likely they are to become a tyrant over the people they lead. And as I found myself uh, looking at this, I began thinking about this chapter, and I thought, you know, boy, am I thankful I'm not in Saul's army. I'm thankful that I'm not part of his team. But the good part about this is as I look at Saul's poor leadership decisions, it's easy to critique him, but I also find that some of those poor leadership choices show up in my own life. And as we went through this, maybe you found some of those poor leadership choices showing up in your own life as well. And to that end, this chapter is good because it helps us see our leadership sin to help us repent of our leadership sin. But there's something else. In this chapter, as I said, I'm thankful that I'm not part of Saul's army. I'm not part of an army with a capricious leader who makes silly decisions so I don't get to eat. A leader who wants to kill those who are acting with great faith in the battlefield if there's a minor infraction of their very word. Saul's a poor leader, but if you look at all the other kings of Israel, aren't they also poor leaders to a greater or lesser extent? All the kings of Israel are poor leaders except for one. And his name is King Jesus. He's the king that never makes a silly oath that frustrates his people. In fact, all of his words bring life and health and goodness to his people. He's the people. He's the king that doesn't ask his soldiers to die for him. But he's the king that died for his soldiers. He died for you and he died for me. He's the king that when we mess up and we sin, whether it's in a big way or a little way, he doesn't go out of his way to kill us and destroy us. He goes out of his way to save us. That's thankfully, I'm thankful I'm following King Jesus, not King Saul. What about you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I'm so thankful that we are not people that are living under the leadership of a man like King Saul, capricious, driven by ego, vicious with his people, ruthless and out of touch. Thank you that Saul and the other kings of the Old Testament showed us the faults of human kings. Thank you for sending us your own son, the one good and pure and righteous king that we get to lead, that gets to lead us, and we get to follow him with complete joy, knowing that, Jesus, all of your words to us are life and health. All the things you tell us are for our good, and you're the king that is a joy to follow. I ask that you would help us this week to joyfully follow you and to tell our friends and neighbors why we're so thrilled to have you in charge of our life. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.